Welcome to episode 35 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. Check out all the shows, search for STMSS in the Google Play or Apple App Store. You can download an app that will allow you to listen to all the episodes, check out the show notes, and share the episodes with somebody that you think might want to hear it. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member, veteran, and military family suicide. If you've been listening to the series so far, you know that we're trying to bring on diverse guests to have the discussion about how we connect national, state, and local organizations together in order to address suicide prevention. Today's guests represent an organization that is involved at all of those levels, the Wounded Warrior Project. Shauna, what can you tell us about our guests? Yeah, so we have two guests today. Mike Richardson is a retired Medical Service Corps Lieutenant Colonel who serves as the Wounded Warrior Project's Independent Services and Mental Health Vice President. He leads programs that provide extensive support and services to warriors and their families to include the most severely wounded, ill, and injured warriors suffering from moderate to severe brain injury, spinal cord injuries, and other neurological conditions who are most at risk of being institutionalized. And Roger Brooks, is a Senior Program Initiatives and Integration Specialist of Mental Health at Wounded Warrior Project. Roger previously served as the Chief Clinical Officer for a mental health facility and as the Co-Director for a Trauma Studies Program. I really appreciate not just the opportunity to have the Wounded Warrior Project on, but Mike, who is a colleague and a friend, and Roger, who I've had a number of conversations with, to come on and bring their perspective of how they're bringing mental health and wellness into the conversation with the Wounded Warrior Project. So we'll get into their conversation and come back afterwards to pull out some key points. Where we're doing with this series is looking at solutions for suicide. Suicide obviously is a lagging indicator of underlying problems and underlying mental health concerns. And that's where the Wounded Warrior Project has really come alongside to address mental health concerns in your alumni. How do you see that applying to suicide prevention when it comes to mental health and wellness and therapy? Dwayne, I would actually um, broaden it to a, a broader scope first, is that Everything Wounded Warrior Project does in all of our program deliveries, as well as our advocacy, et cetera, is all geared towards suicide prevention from our physical health and wellness, our financial wellness, to our social connectedness programs with the, those that are isolated, and of course, to our mental and brain health program, of which Roger and I are part of that portfolio and responsible for. And what we haven't done a really good job about is predictive aspects of suicide indicators even within our own population of warriors that we engage with very deeply. And so we're starting to actually question ourselves, even those that have gone through our Warrior Care Network, our Project Odyssey, or been through other programs that we've had, we think they're doing great. What happens in three or four years from now, right? How are we able to stay engaged with them, either through social media, to be predictive of signs and symptoms so that we understand that there's still 
thriving within their communities as opposed to now surviving because life will punch you in the throat. You get all the training, you're doing great, and then something. And so are we really building up the resilience and the psychological well-being and hardiness to really deal with that next punch in the throat from life? And so all of our programs, Dwayne, are surrounded around trying to do that to, well, you know, you explain it so much better than anybody I've ever heard, meaning and purpose in life, and they're not the same, they're very different, but one complements the other but really having a sense of meaning and purpose in their life and in their communities and are fully engaged. So that's our program support. And so particular to our mental health approach to this, we have a mental health continuum, right, that goes from those in acute distress to those who are doing better but still need some mental health engagement. We're meeting warriors where they are. That's our approach to our mental and brain health programming. There's a lot of great programs out there that are doing a lot of great things, but they might only do one thing. What do they do if they have somebody in acute distress? We do have programs for that. What is somebody who may need an intensive outpatient program? We have partners for that and programs for that. What about those that need the social connectedness and the peer engagement to help them with their resilience and psychological well-being and move along that continuum? We have those programs as well. And then, as I mentioned, we also have the wraparound services that we provide through financial wellness social isolation, getting them out of that, as well as physical health and wellness, mind, body, spirit connection. That's one of the fortunate things at Wound Warrior Project that all of our programs are geared towards suicide prevention by making a life just amazing and taking that option off of the table for our warriors and their families. And, and I think this is something that I've seen, obviously from the outside looking in, uh, that Wounded Warrior Project is trying to address this continuum. We're looking at the public health model and implementing some of, not just reducing the risk factors, which is what some of the mental health care does, especially on the farther end of that continuum, but improving the protective factors. And Roger, that's really what a lot of Wounded Warrior Project has done, again, with the financial wellness and connectedness, is addressing some of those protective factors with economic stability, education, awareness around mental health and suicide. So you don't get to that point, like Mike said. Exactly. And one of our goals is really to provide resiliency and coping mechanisms because we know life gets in the way. It's never as simple as one problem drives all of your crisis or all of your psychological distress. So the goal is really to prepare our warriors who go through our programs and go through that path of recovery for not only how to deal with whatever crisis or whatever issues they're having at that moment, but the truth is that's easy, right? It's easy to deal with a crisis or a trauma in a clinical setting. The true challenge is when you return home, when you return back to that immersion into temptations, into whatever you have there, so the goal is really to provide the coping mechanisms to bring every skill that's learned back to the community. And to Mike's point as well is really they become ambassadors for the healing process back in their communities. And they become force multipliers to deal with stigma, to deal with making PTSD something that's discussed in the light as opposed to in the dark. So yes, it's definitely one of our driving forces within our programs. If I could add one point um, about, again, what Wounded Warrior Project's doing, right? We're also actively engaged, as you are doing this extensively, in challenging the national discussion on suicide and causality there and working to destigmatize seeking mental health or et cetera. But what we have done in the past and we're starting to not do as much is state statistics and data, but simply having conversations with the audience of which we're with and really trying to make sure that knowledge we think is being received is actually being ingrained in their understanding. Because while we know treatment works, 
but the same treatment doesn't work for everyone. The same with embarking our knowledge and our understanding and the discussions. And we need to make sure that we're having those on a, a real personal human interaction in our discussions and not just citing data and statistics out there and numbers. I think if we start getting away from that, we may be able to start to get to those warriors and those family members. And again, this isn't a military issue, it's a national issue of suicide, to those families that uh, are impacted by this. Again, and we're trying to change our vernacular as well in that, and I really appreciate what you're doing helping us do that. And I think that's one of the things that, again, one of the questions is what isn't working and simply reciting the numbers isn't working. And number one is that because it's such a complex issue and from time to time the numbers change or people's understandings of the numbers change and things like that, how important is that to move away from just the numbers and the statistics to be able to just having real and honest conversations about suicide and ultimately the things that might lead to it? Yeah, I'll start. One of the things that does frustrate me about the discussions around suicide and mental and behavioral health treatment is that those that are having the discussions in the field of psychology or even the suicide prevention and also well-intentioned individuals outside the space are trying to compare one against the other, right? This works better than this. This works better as opposed to looking at the holistic view of yeah, there might be a package that works the best as opposed to your one intervention thought. Um, and if we can get out of that myopic view of is beekeeping and meditation better than CPT and PE? Is group therapy better than individual therapy? Is community engagement for suicide prevention better than a spiritual engagement? I think that's part of the challenge that we have is a lot of talking heads, which are important to keep the dialogue going. But we need to make sure we're having a much more rounded conversation of the challenges and setting aside our own biases and being open to that real open dialogue, especially the ones that are also talking, but also doing things. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about the Warrior Project. We're, we are part of the discussion, but we're also part of the treatment of today and the solution of tomorrow through research and bringing folks together to have these discussions. That's something that does frustrate me when I hear the same folks talking to the same folks saying the same thing. And just to add to that, we've been discussing that for some time, Dwayne, this notion of how can we act as a catalyst or a moderator to change that dialogue. As Mike mentioned, the discussion's happening, but it's happening at conferences where the same people go every year after year, and it never translates. One of the things that has frustrated me, and we've had this discussion internally, is we seem to be driven by this contagion theory when it comes to suicide. It's let's not talk about it because the second you talk about it, someone's going to do it. And it keeps discussions of suicide in the dark. And as this taboo that don't touch it, don't you dare touch it unless it's in a hospital setting, in a clinical setting. And it prevents us from providing the education and skill training needed to have those discussions comfortably. And that's something at Wounded War Project we really want to have a loud voice in. And I think Mike has testified before Congress multiple times, several op-ed pieces to that point, to having that discussion and challenging ourselves to go outside of what we've done in the past because it's not working. I think this is one of the things, and really this may be the time, just the interest in the show that, that we're doing and the period of time that we're restarting this, that we need to have different discussions. We talk about, again, going back to the statistics, we don't know what the current statistics are. We're using intelligence that's two years old for a battle today. 
But this is something that is becoming increasingly more necessary and evident through the guests we're talking about is how do we take what we know works at the national level, which is what you're talking about, this strategic, this academic, this evidence base, and then translate it, as you were saying, in a way that applies to community levels, right? Wounded Warrior Project is national, international in every community but applying what's happening here in the Rocky Mountain region is definitely going to be different than what you're doing in the great Northwest or the the Southeast. And so that's one of the things that I see Wounded Warrior Project is doing is having this vertical integration between the theory and the action. Yeah. And you had asked a little earlier, Julian, about specific mental and brain health engagements. And I know we talked about a warrior care network, but that's an example of what you just mentioned. You're taking the theory and, and being able to put it into practice because we know treatment works, right? And we mentioned this already, but not the same treatment works for everyone. And it calls for an innovative approach to that. And that's what we've done with our warrior care network. And now this is an intervention, which is part of prevention. And then I get that, but we've already identified those that are at high risk, severe post-traumatic stress disorder, comorbid with traumatic brain injury or substance use disorder and anxiety and depression, all comorbid. So we said, okay, we can't go with the same type of intervention if we want to build up that resilience and psychological well-being and move them along that continuum. And so, and actually June is... Five years ago, we entered into an agreement with the four academic medical centers to create our warrior care network. And that's Massachusetts General Hospital, Emory University in Atlanta, Rush University in Chicago, and then UCLA Health out in California. Because we wanted to accelerate an innovative model of mental health care, anchored in evidence-based, but surrounded by complementary and alternative therapies. And our warriors, they go through either a two or three week intensive outpatient program, all residential. So they all fly in together as a cohort and they go through as a cohort. They start and they graduate as a cohort and they receive upwards of 70 hours of therapy in this two to three weeks. And so that was really innovative. Yeah, the DOD was doing that with the NICO focused primarily on TBI. But what happened is when they left, like it was falling apart, right? What's the follow-up? What's the ability to really engage longer term with those wraparound services that I mentioned? And also the completion rate. You know, we have over a, uh, gosh, 90% completion rate of the over 2,000 warriors that have gone through our intensive outpatient programming. And 96% of them, these I know we're throwing out numbers, but these are important numbers, will tell their buddy about it. That's normalizing mental health care. That blows my mind. When we say we have a 90% completion rate, 96% are gonna tell their buddies about it, jaws drop because you don't hear that. That's almost twice the national average of, uh, you know, that we see in like programs. So that's a way to be agile and look at challenging the status quo, but really delivering something differently. And just in April, our Warrior Care Network was recognized with the Gold Service Award from the American Psychiatric Association. Uh, they give out three awards every year, gold, silver, and bronze, and our Warrior Care Network, because of what I just mentioned over the last five years, where it's come and where it's going, is really remarkable. And I just throw that out there. That's one of the things that Wounded Warrior Project's doing specifically within the mental and brain health areas and tying it all together. And I think this innovation, and, and yes, you have this intervention continuum, but then there's stages along that intervention continuum in that not everybody needs to go through one of the four. It's somebody who's just having some struggles or maybe struggling with some transition things doesn't need the intensive outpatient program. 
and, and this is one thing that I've always been appreciative of with the Wounded Warrior Project is you have different aspects along this continuum, this care continuum that does not give someone more than they need. Absolutely. One of the strengths of the continuum is that we're not prescriptive in nature. We really are fluid and meet the warriors where their needs are. Nobody knows better than the warrior what those needs are. So the continuum is designed to really provide programmatic engagement depending on where the warrior's levels of resiliency and psychological well-being are. So to your point, Dwayne, if someone doesn't need intensive outpatient treatment, it makes no sense for them to start at the very beginning of the continuum and move forward. We would engage in maybe with the Project Odyssey where warriors are going through with higher levels of resiliency and lower levels of distress. One of the magical pieces of the continuum as well is life gets in the way sometimes. So you may have very high levels of resiliency now and you're going through a program and you go home and you're served with divorce papers. And all of a sudden, you may have to cycle back through another program. And that's really one of the fluid beauties of our continuum is that it allows you to skip a step, go back a step, and really interact in whatever way your path for recovery uh, needs you to engage. Dwayne, one other thing we've seen in that is that someone may think they're okay. And then they start off further along in the continuum, either traditional outpatient programming and our talk program or Project Odyssey. And like, whoa, I'm not doing well. And we also have more intensive programming as well to, to feed into that. We see that quite often because they just don't understand the challenges that either the warrior or their family member are facing. But we're able to rip that Band-Aid off and say, let's get you the right level of care. So you're absolutely right. That's why we have a continuum. You know, I'm thinking of the military, you know, when, uh, when somebody just starts to fall back from a run formation, right? You, you get one person that just helps them motivate them a little bit, but then when somebody falls back farther, you got other people to do that. And then you got straggler control. It's this idea of if somebody starts to wander off the path of wellness, uh, the first thing is, are you working? Do you have economic stability? Is it these kind of things? If in digging in that, hey, there might be a little bit more here, let's transition you to this as you say, outpatient therapy, or here's this Project Odyssey, dig into that. And that's where I really see is the flexibility of the Warrior Care Network as one aspect of the overall public health of suicide prevention, where you're not trying to prevent suicide by hanging a sign on somebody said, I'm keeping you alive today. You're trying to do that by increasing wellness. Absolutely. I think that's important is we really take a very culturally competent way of addressing not only treatment, but individual needs. Again, we're not prescriptive because for some weird reason, we want to know what predicts suicide. We want to know that A plus B equals this, and we fail to address the collective need, the holistic need of the warrior, family, community. And it it just seems like we've got our heads in the dirt just wanting to find out. Please tell me. In fact, uh, Mike, I can't even count how many interviews we've had where that's the question. Tell us what predicts suicide. If we knew that, we'd be in a very different discussion. So for us, it's really empowering the warrior holistically, culturally competently, so that it's not, as you mentioned earlier, someone may have geographic differences, cultural differences that we need to take and keep in mind as we empower warriors so that, again, we're honoring those differences and not marginalizing them by telling them, Here's the prescriptive way that we're going to save your life. 
I think, Dwayne, in that, thinking about the challenges of suicide, again, as we mentioned, citing numbers and statistics, et cetera, and it hasn't worked, right? It's not getting better. Uh, there, there's no doubt about that. We believe, anyways, like you said, it's a, there's a couple year lag of, of current data. It might be getting worse. Um, but this is a massive problem, obviously. I'm, I'm stating the obvious. And it's going to really take some real innovative changes, which may challenge the sensitivities of clinicians, of individuals, if we're really going to try to get in front of it, to be more predictive as opposed to reactive. And I don't know what that means. I really don't. Not yet. But I'm appreciative of the dialogue that's starting to look at, you know, individual data. Should we give up some privacy aspects to better predict who's struggling and, and intervene earlier, left of the boom, if you will, et cetera. So I, I don't know, but it's going to take more than just getting together and talking and, oh, let's get communities together. Oh, that briefs well. But uh, it doesn't always work. We have a couple pockets of that are examples that we might be able to replicate, but appreciate the Prevents Task Force that's going on right now, bringing in some folks, but I'm, I'm afraid with the political environment, it's being stifled and not moving as far as it could. But then again, while I'm pleased, I'm never satisfied, so I don't think I'll ever be satisfied where we are in that. But it is a challenge, and, and I just wonder what those massive solutions could be. And this is, in, and you bring up something that, that we had uh, Captain Matt Kleiman from the National Guard Bureau on the show, and he coined one of my new favorite terms, which is silos of excellence, is that we, we have some people doing some really great stuff. And so there are, it, it's not centers of excellence, it's silos of excellence. And, it, and again, this sounds like what Wounded Warrior Project and other organizations are trying to do is to build bridges between that silos. We have the organizations, but it's the integrators, I think, now that need to take this next step. The idea of what can people do? That's that question of tell me the signs, because that's just intervention. People are looking for how do I keep somebody from dying within the next 24 to 48 hours? You tell me that and I'm good to go. That's transactional. Whereas we need to move to transformational. What action steps do you think we need to take maybe as a community or even as individuals, as a veteran service organization industry? What are some action steps that need to be done in the future to be able to make a difference here? Wow, that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, hey, we're looking, we're looking for the solution. That's what yeah, this is exactly about. right. And uh, here's the thing is not take our foot off the gas pedal, number one, and, and not discard anything, almost anything, uh, of opportunities for us to engage at every single level. And that is all of the communities, the places of worship, whatever those may be for the individuals, bringing them all together, putting away individual organizational biases to really attack this problem and get in front and figure out what does bubble up to the top. Is it a little bit of lack of privacy so that we can engage more with individuals? Is it the community support systems that folks are now not parochial about their own program, but are opening it up to, to the goodness of what we're all trying to do? Silos of excellence, that was absolutely perfect. We gotta break those down so that we can all learn from each other and then really apply the best of the best. Just because you've done this for so long doesn't mean it's the best. Yeah, it's good, but there's other stuff that's out there being better and being able to, as a collective to go in that direction so that we can help our warriors and their families much better and the nation and world, if you will, because again, it's not restricted to only the United States as well. Just to add to that, I think it's gonna take a cultural revolution of sorts, right? To build on what Mike said, the way we've been doing things, the way we've been thinking of things isn't working. This notion of being competitive in the mental health field. I'm gonna do this research, but don't you dare look at me until I publish. 
even though I know now I'm going to beat you to the punch to do this publication. And instead of communicating this public, a great example, publish or perish has to be rethought in academia because it's keeping us from communicating this notion of uh, policymakers speaking only with policymakers, psychologists speaking only to psychologists. And then within mental health, psychologists only to psychologists, master's levels only to master's levels. It's having to change this notion that somehow this ivory tower is where we hold the mental health information and only the select few can come in and use the psychobabble that we use to make ourselves sound smarter as opposed to disseminating information to the masses because that's what it's going to take. It shouldn't be, I don't know how to talk to this warrior or this person. I, I have to go find a therapist. There should be active resources for that person because there's not enough therapists to go around if that's the strategy we're going to continue to hold strong or head, head fast to. One thing I'd add too, Duane, is that, and you mentioned transformative as opposed to transactional. I still think we need a lot of transactional stuff. That's going to have to happen uh, as we build the ladder to whatever right looks like at the top aspect of that. A lot of folks don't even know how to engage with somebody who may be thinking of harming themselves or others. And so there's a lot of great training out there. Uh, we need to provide mental health first aid to the masses, not the eaches, but the masses through assist or the save video from psych armor. There's a lot of tools out there that uh, you guys have ingrained in yourselves from your education, and your clinical experience. But those of us who don't have that, need those tools so that we are comfortable in addressing it at a transactional level, which then may lead to great ideas at the transformational level as well. I really appreciate that. And I will make sure that the links to the Warrior Care Network and all that you're doing to Wounded Warrior Project are going to be in the show notes. Thanks for coming on the show today. Uh, Dwayne, thanks for having us, brother. Good to see you. Appreciate it. So many people know about the Wounded Warrior Project. They are a national organization. They are focused on post 9-11 veterans, but they do a lot of good work at the community level and then at the regional and state level, as well as being part of the national conversation around many different things, but mental health and wellness is one that's emerged over the last several years. So I'm really glad that we were able to highlight them on the show. Definitely. Wounded Warrior Project has unquestionably made its mark in the field and will continue to evolve and grow as its leadership shows flexible thinking. Both Mike and Roger made comments to suggest that our best options may require us to go well beyond our current frame of thinking. WWP has shifted away from sharing alarming statistics to having brave conversations. Mike said that an individual standalone treatment may not work as well as a package of treatments. We need to meet warriors where they are across the continuum of care and that not every treatment works equally well for different people. Roger talked about how we need to move the discussion well outside the lines of traditional settings and make concepts land outside of the academic world in which they may have been conceived. Innovation sometimes requires us to swim upstream, to develop relationships of trust outside of our assigned tribes, and to say things that are hard to say. I'm glad to hear that WWP openly states his intentions as the state of the field continues to evolve in large measure due to organizations like Wounded Warrior Project that have such broad reach and impact. I once heard a, 
a story about the development of the DSM for those clinical people uh, listening understand, but for those who aren't, our diagnostic manual for, for mental health. And they described in part of this conversation about developing the latest iteration is there are lumpers and there are splitters. The lumpers were usually people that were in the clinical space, and then the splitters were people in the research space. The splitters were those individuals that wanted to narrowly define a particular psychological diagnosis and and come up with that. And the lumpers were those that recognized that none of it happens in a vacuum. For us in our conversation, yes, PTSD, as well as anxiety and depression and emotion dysregulation and all the other things that come along with it. And so I, I say that to be able to talk about that sometimes when we look at suicide prevention, many people want to be splitters, want to actually focus on one aspect of suicide prevention, maybe not necessarily thinking that's the whole solution, but really we need to be lumpers because it, it isn't just one solution for one person. And we need to take whatever word or phrase you want to use, holistic or comprehensive or wraparound services. But really what Roger and Mike were talking about here was taking a look at the whole veteran concept or the whole individual concept and addressing the needs of the individual rather than just applying one particular method and hope that would address the whole problem. Yes. And you know that I absolutely agree. I've found for many of the past several years, the best outcomes that I've seen for my patients have been through the fusion of the expertise of medical doctors and myself and a team of providers. And I think this is consistent with how the folks in the the military operate in terms of units. It's not an individual one-on-one thing. It's a, a whole group core unit that gets the outcome. Absolutely agree with all of that. I also wanted to comment on the completion rate of Wounded Warrior Project programs. Specifically, Mike talks about a 90% completion rate versus a relatively much lower rate for completion of other kinds of programs. Based on many years of developing and supporting cohort-based programs myself, I think the secret sauce is in the cohort model of treatment particularly for military service members and veterans, as I was just saying. In the military, everything meaningful is done in units. And service members don't put their lives on the line for some abstract concept of patriotism when they're in the heat of war. They put their lives on the line for their brothers and sisters in their closest units. When you run therapy as a cohort model, that instinct to show up for each other and struggle valiantly together resurfaces. It propels moral courage and sustains persistence in the face of discomfort. In all of my years of doing therapy in this way, I can only remember two instances when a group member exited a cohort-based therapy experience. This is why I'll continue to advocate for group-based treatments. I agree. And and that addresses, like you said, the connection to other veterans. And again, this idea of the public health approach, connectedness is a prevention. Increasing connectedness among veterans is a way to keep someone from getting into a suicidal crisis. And also having other veterans experiencing the journey in the same way at the same time is also a way to provide suicide safer care, especially for service members and veterans. And, And I agree. I've had clients who have gone through some of these programs who have said even after the programs that they've remained in contact with their cohort, uh, that they've remained in contact 
with those individuals that were with them when they went through that, through the, the warrior care network. And so I absolutely agree. Having that connection to other during treatment isn't a key, but it can definitely enhance recovery. Yeah. I've actually had conversations with civilian mental health leaders. And um, what has come up in some of those conversations is an interesting kind of fear that if you group veterans together, they will move in the wrong direction, like towards despair or hopelessness together. That is not what I've found. In every case that I've had a cohort-based group, they have propelled each other towards health and propelled each other to be brave and do things that they might not have done otherwise in sharing and opening up and then showing up for each other. There's just this powerful and beautiful pressure of a good kind that happens and it, it moves them towards health in every case that I've seen. Yes, there's a, a number of different things that can be beneficial that we carry from the military, but calling each other on our BS is, I think is probably one of the modules we learned first in basic training. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's definitely a, a key task that you pick up very quickly. So we really appreciate everybody taking the time to check out the show. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS35 or by downloading the app by searching STMSS in the Apple app or Google Play stores. In the show notes, you can get the links to everything we talked about in this episode, as well as finding the show on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions and let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group moderated by the outstanding D. James by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. You can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us, and the work that I'm doing by checking out my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror, Mental Health and Wellness in Post-Military Life. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to them in the show notes. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. And always remember you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing one. Chat online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution and make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.